everybody and welcome to the Smorgasbord. I'm Tom Shapira and with me as always... Hello, I'm Sean Edry and here's a quote from A Land Called Tarot. <laughs> nice, nice. Thank you. This is a comic book podcast brought to you, of course, by the fine folks at Seekward. Seekward.org, the best online and unusual source for comic books, news, reviews and critiques. Buy their books, uh, read their articles, watch their movies. And remember that Seekward is on Patreon. Support smart criticism in comics. And we are back after a brief break while Tom was away gallivanting in London and rubbing elbows with living legends. Not that I'm jealous. Well, I wouldn't say I've reached elbow deep, but yeah, the reason we didn't have an episode for two weeks is because I was in a jolly old England in the 2080 uh, 40-year anniversary one-day con, which was uh, frill-powerific, I guess, Zarges. <laughs> Whenever I try to pronounce those things, I, it sounds terrible, so I usually avoid it. It was very fun, and yes, I met, you know, there were like 60 creators and like 4,000 years of comic experience overall, because a lot of them are creating comics from like the 60s and the 70s. Who was there? John Wagner, Carlos Esquera, Arthur Ranson, Rob Williams, L. Ewing, John McRae, uh, Steve Yowell, John Higgins... Dave Gibbons. If anybody was at 2000 AD, he was there. The only exceptions that I could find were Morrison. Of course. And Annis and Moore. Yeah, basically the people who moved on from 2000 AD to have even bigger careers in the mainstream. You know, Rob Williams was there. He's doing fine in America right now. Yeah, doing fine, but like... Mm. He's not Morrison yet. Yeah, give him time. Uh, since I was there, one of the people who did a little hosting thing there was uh, Kelly Kanayama, who's right now serializing a book for Seekward, so we should probably mention that. She's doing a book called uh, Until the End of the World, the first critical volume focused entirely on Garth Ennis, which is a long time coming. You know, we have tons of book on Moore and Morrison and even uh, Ennis, so, you know, from all of the big names of the British invasion, surely Ennis has his due for a nice big thick book. I can understand why critics might have shied away from him for a period of time just because of the specific themes and content that he dealt with. But I agree with you that it's past time for him to get his due. Like, let him have the spotlight. He's been around for ages. So you can find uh, parts of the book right now are serialized on Seaport and hopefully we'll get the full volume. I don't know, whenever she finishes it. Looking forward to it. Uh, shall we go on to the news? Yes. Oh, this is sad. Uh, sad, but not unexpected. Guillermo del Toro has announced during this week that the idea of an Hellboy 3 movie, which he mentioned in the last few months that he's wanting to make a Hellboy 3 movie, and he had like a poll on his Twitter account looking for interest, and he talked to Ron Pellman, he talked to the studios, and no, it's dead. It's deader than Hellboy towards the end of Hellboy in Hell. He said 100% the Hellboy 3 is not going to happen. Which is sad, because I know that the movies were not financially successful, but they were stylish and fun. Hellboy 2 opened right before The Dark Knight, so when it came, yeah, it was swallowed, it was trampled, it was crushed out of existence. But I do think of it as a high point in the movies during that period of, between the end of the Schumacher era and before Marvel kicked it into high gear. I really liked Hellboy 1, Hellboy 2. I thought it looked spectacular. It oh, was yeah. a great, greatly designed movie. It was a greatly directed movie. The script was so dull to me that I was like, eh. 
But, you know, I wanted to see Hellboy 3 as much as any other fan of those movies. And while I'm sad it doesn't happen, A, I never had any high hopes of it happening. It's just like we always, whenever somebody floats up the idea of a Dread sequel with Carl Urban and we're like, yay, but we know it's not going to happen, right? Oh, hope springs eternal, you know. Not in Mega City 1. That's a good point, actually. And B, Guillermo del Toro has such a history of starting things and never finishing them. He was supposed to direct the sequel to Pacific Rim 2. Never happened. He was supposed to direct the Hobbit trilogy. Never happened. He was supposed to do... There were at least three other Guillermo del Toro projects announced and cancelled in the middle of him making other movies. He was even supposed to do this Silent Hill video game with uh, Hideo Kojima, was it? Yep. And that was cancelled too. Well, that one wasn't his fault, though. It's not his fault. He just, he chooses hard projects and he tries to make them and it doesn't work. It's a bit like, uh, who was the guy in Monty Python who always makes movies that never... You're asking the wrong person. Terry Gilliam, right? Oh, Terry Gilliam has a history of disastrous shoots and it's not as bad. As far as I know, nobody died in the middle of producing a Guillermo del Toro movie. As far as you know. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And if they die, he'll probably bring them back to life with this strange machine from Kronos, so it'll be okay. <laughs> this might be me reading the tea leaves. I don't know how accurate it is, but he said that he had done the poll, and then he talked to Ron Perlman, and we know that Ron Perlman said yes. And then according to Del Toro's tweet, he talked to Mike Mignola, and then it fell apart. Do we think that Mignola said no? It's possible. I don't think Mignola had saying this because he sold the rights to the studios and he sold the rights to make the movie. When Mignola talked about the first Hellboy movie, he said, I never expected them to make it. I sold the rights twice before Guillermo del Toro even touched it. I sold them because they give you money just for optioning it. And I never thought in a billion, billion years that they would actually make a Hellboy movie. So once you sell the rights, it really, it's out of your hands. He got his money and he makes the comics he wants to make. He doesn't care very much about the movies. I mean, he cares if they're good or bad, but it's not like... He said before, the movies are Guillermo del Toro and Hellboy, which are not Mike Mignola Hellboy. Those are two very different beasts. A Farmageddon. But the films were good. Like, there are cases of bad adaptations of indie properties, and then there are ones that are, if not perfectly accurate, it was pretty close. They're good, and I'm sad we won't have another one, but again, I'm not surprised. It's it's not like, oh, I hoped it was coming and then it was taken away. It's not like the Edgar Wright Ant-Man movie, which was, it was so close, it was right there, and then it was, oh, it's, it's someone else's Ant-Man movie, which was okay, but... We could have had it all! <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, we've talked about video games. I'm trying to make like a sly connection. <laughs> well, no, speaking of licenses. <laughs> speaking of li- <laughs> Yes. Uh, end of 2000 AD, which we spoke of before. See, everything's connected, Sean. It's a conspiracy. A podcasting conspiracy. Rebellion, the video game developer who also owns 2000 AD and all related products, have announced that they're opening the entire 2000 AD comics library to licensing. So a video game company bought the comic, and now they're licensing the video game rights to other companies. That sounds weird to me. Okay, so let me give you some context on the video game side of this. Yep, yep, yep. Okay, so this is interesting for a couple of reasons. First of all, there's never been a good 2018 game. I remember that somewhere in the early 2000s, there was a third-person shooter that was based on Rogue Trooper. Yeah, and there was a Dread iOS game. Forgettable. 
completely vacuous, just nothing there, right? Now, this isn't to say that Rebellion itself is bad at making games, because I know that they have two franchises that are relatively popular at the time. Um, Battlezone and I think Sniper Elite. Now, I don't know what their status is today, because they have a lot of competition in that particular genre, but at the time they were pretty successful. Now there are potential positives here. Obviously, when we talk about 2000 AD, it's this wealth of concepts and characters and settings, any one of which would be fantastic as games of different genres, right? Oh yes, yes, we're all waiting for Blair One, the video game. No, 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 but you could have like a Judge Dredd shooter, you could have a Nikolai Dante role-playing game. I'm not a gamer, but when they've announced it, my first thought was that Everybody would want to make a Judge Dredd shooter, and that's not a good idea because that would be generic. I want to see a Judge Dredd uh, real-time strategy slash SimCity type sure. thing where you're supposed to manage Mega City 1 and sort of balance out all the different like types of judges like your street judge, your undercover judge, your robot judges, and... Every few turns or whatever, the game throws like, oh, it's an alien invasion. Oh, it's a block war. It's a chaos day bug. And you sort of have to deal with it. So here's the catch. That's exactly what I wanted to say. The major catch here, the big if in the room, as it were, is that it really, really depends on who ends up receiving these licenses. Rebellion would obviously be tempted to go for the big game studios, which are EA, Activision, Ubisoft, etc. The problem there is twofold. First of all, when you go to those big studios, you are going to get a game that goes to the lowest common denominator, which means it would be a dredge shooter. And these companies don't have the best track record when it comes to licensed properties. Activision tanked its Marvel Ultimate Alliance and X-Men line with a series of poor choices. EA has been sitting on the Star Wars license since Disney took over and made one online game in all that time that was not particularly well received. So they haven't really done the most with that potential. On the other hand, though, Indie developers who would have the passion to make great games out of the 2080 content and precisely think outside the box and say, okay, what if we did a strategy dread game? Or what if we did, I don't know, Indigo Prime as an adventure game or something, right? Like completely outside the box, they would have the passion and the innovation to do that, but not necessarily the resources to pull it off, assuming that Rebellion isn't actively funding them. Okay, now the big names will obviously be taken quickly, but Sean, if you and I work fast, the two of us can scoop out one of the lower tier 2000D titles. I think nobody else would ask for Shaco. <laughs> <laughs> the Pet Mills, Killer Bear, well, you know, they've canceled Flash, I've got to do something with Killer Animals. Or I've got a milk. pitch for you. Yes, okay. Tyranny Rex Erotic Text Adventure. Wow. <laughs> I'm thinking this will be taken by the guys at the Jimquisition. <laughs> I mean... The Jimquisition, th by the way, is a very good video game podcast. How good it is? I'm listening to it weekly. I don't play video games. I have been a longtime fan of Jim Sterling for many, many years. He's a very, very insightful critic. I wonder why do you like a smart, angry guy, Sean? I don't know. There's some deep connection there. He gets mad about the right people, just like I do. So that is sort of the dichotomy here that we're facing and the, the problems that go with it, which is that the big studios have the funding to create these games without 
rebellion needing to do anything, which is obviously ideal for rebellion. But on the other hand, you know, if you give 2000 AD to EA, the only thing they'll do with it is make a Judge Dredd first-person shooter. That's it. That's as far as their invention can go. I don't know, dude. They'll take Slain and do like a Golden Axe skin or something. They'll take Slain and do a first-person hack and slash. Ugh. Because they are so obsessed with the bottom line. It's not that different from the comics industry or from the film industry, right? The bigger they are, the more interested they are in going to the lowest common denominator so that the most people will play them. And if that means compromising on any sense of innovation or fun or trying different things just for the hell of it, they'll do that. They're willing to sacrifice that. So I hope that Rebellion chooses wisely. (laughs) And actual comics news. Yes. You remember that we talked about this when she actually said she was retiring. Let's get into this. Karen Berger left DC in 2013 after 30 years, 20 of which were spent managing Vertigo. I don't remember if she ever gave a reason as to why she left, but it was clear that this was more or less the end of Vertigo. Shelley Bond, God bless her, tried to keep it going. She was fired in 2016. Now... They're down to... There's uh, five titles and two of them are good, right? Three titles, one of which is a Fables spin-off. Another is Lucifer and Astro City, of course. No, which... no, no. They have Sheriff of Babylon, which is good. and Sheriff of Babylon is, is not on the solicitations for May. Uh, they, no, no, no. They've stopped after 12 issues, but they said they'll do a season two. So that's that. And Unfollow is also pretty good. Talking about Rob Williams. Unfollow is also on quote-unquote hiatus. Oh, really? I didn't notice. They just had an issue out. Like I said, there are still good projects from Vertigo, but the idea of Vertigo as this leading light of in the middle between art comics to genre comics, there was Vertigo. That idea is gone because, well, Image took its place, right? (laughs) And did better, to be honest. Well, I do miss Vertigo's being on deadline. They were a lot better than Image in that. They are still a lot better in Image than that. The thing is that Vertigo's heyday was so long ago that I don't remember if shipping delays were actually a thing back then. But regardless, um, one of the things that we said at the time when Berger announced that she was quitting was that if she ever did decide to get back in the game, any company would be incredibly lucky to have her. And as it turns out, Dark Horse is that lucky company. Well, see, here's the thing. You totally forgot she was an image for like five minutes. She was the editor of Surgeon X, which... Shipped out, I think, five issues, speaking of deadlines, and I've read the first one and I was like, oh, that's certainly a book that comes out. I haven't read it, but I know that it's been retroactively made a six-issue mini. The last issue came out this week, and the artist died. What? Jeez. So yeah, there were problems probably. I don't know. I, I will read Surgeon X at some point, but that was like a one-time project. I don't think Image ever said like, oh, she'll be working for us or something like that. But now Dark Horse have announced that Burger will be launching her own imprint, Burger Books, which is a line of new creator-owned comics and graphic novels with her as editor and overseer of the line. Now, let's be fair here. No titles or creative teams have been announced yet. Right, We don't know anything about it other than the fact that Berger is running the imprint. But I think even that is reason to be excited to an extent. Because let's not forget, okay? This is the woman who basically kick-started the American careers of Grant Morrison and Neil Gaiman. She oversaw Alan Moore's Swamp Thing at the height of its success. She basically discovered Scott Snyder, Brian Azzarello, Brian Vaughn, who knows who else, 
And unlike certain other editors at DC we could name, to my knowledge, there has never been any scandal attached to her. There were never rumors that she was difficult to work with. This is someone who seems to be held in high regard by the titans of the industry today, right? The She's biggest one of titans. those rare cases where the editor was a superstar. Yeah, exactly. And this even without any information about what book she's putting out specifically, doesn't matter because the formation of this imprint and the acquisition of Karen Berger is a huge win for Dark Horse. Now, there is, for me at least, tons of goodwill and Berger bought it, you know, with lots of sweat and hard work. She earned every inch of goodwill that you'll give her and that I'll give her. I am a bit weary simply because, like you said, that heyday was a long time ago. And the problem is that the thing that she brought to the comic industry is now more common, right? The idea of a book that Karen Berger would manage is not only a thing that Vertigo does. It's a thing that comes out from Image, but yes, but also from Dark Horse every once in a while, from Boom, from IDW, from Aftershock. Yes. So the question is, like you said, without knowing anything else, is there a direction to that line or is it just simply the books that Karen Berger loved? Because for a while, not forever, but for a while, a Vertigo book was something that you could point at and say, well, it's the sort of urban fantasy post-Sandman thing with a bit of a marquee color scheme on it. And somebody will read a tarot deck at one point or another. <laughs> that was a thing for like at least a good five years uh, after the end of Sandman, that was like 90% of Vertigo, and it took a while before we had diversification. We had the crime books and the science fiction books and the cyberpunk books. Yeah. It goes back to the issue of like that uncertainty of what exactly she's aiming for. I think the nice thing about creator-owned projects, particularly in today's market, is that because the concept of creator-owned content essentially allows for any kind of diversity, right? Like we've joked in the past about how Image is the sci-fi and fantasy publisher right now. 90% of their creator-owned comics that they're publishing usually deal in one of those two genres to some extent. That said, it's not as if we were drowning in science fiction and fantasy original works beforehand in comics. Well, now we are. We will reach the previews soon, and and I like... Sure, sure. There's a lot of it. I don't know. Maybe it's because these works are always so insular that if you have another one, then it's just another book to read and not something that necessarily comes at the expense of something else. This will become much clearer when we get to the previews. But the idea that Dark Horse might be able to compete with Image and Boom now in terms of having a very distinct imprint that identifies itself in some way or another. We don't know what Berger's aiming for. She could go full literary comics, right? She could end up doing like Sandman 2, the Sandmaning, and bring in like literary comics and P. Craig Russell, wherever the hell he is, and just do that. And that would still be an imprint that distinguishes itself. Well, since we're looking forward to look back, I'm thinking about one of the comics that we'll review. And um, it's hard for me to think about going backwards to go forward. In what way? In the way of like, we're excited about someone maybe doing the things that she'd done before. And like, oh, this would be a huge step forward. And I think it's more that if we sum up her accomplishments as she managed to headline a successful imprint for 20 years and put out some very iconic books that are still fondly remembered today and discovered 
all of these talents and cultivated relationships with people who today, you know, Neil Gaiman is not necessarily someone who you just call up and be like, hey, Neil, pitch us a six issue comic, right? But she could. She potentially has that ability to connect with pros on the one hand, and yet we know that she has an eye for up-and-comers as well. Karen Berger presents Neil Gaiman's The Snore Man from Dark Horse. Why not, Tom? Why not? If this is an imprint that ends up defining itself by its talent rather than its genre, so what? That's just more of an argument for Dark Horse to level up, as it were, because they have been known for so long as the horror publisher or the pulp publisher. Hellboy is winding down, so they don't have all of these. Buffy, nobody's even reading it anymore. We've talked about it. Dark Horse have a huge back library, and they're doing a very good job at keeping it in print. I have tons of Dark Horse hardcovers on my shelf, and we'll talk about some of them coming soon. But there is... They need to go forward. Yeah, there's the Colin Bun Horror series that gets lots of good reviews. Not Horror County, uh, some in the southern United States, I don't know. The fact that you can't remember its name tells well, me. Well, yeah, okay, <laughs> I, I don't read it, but it gets tons of good reviews. But yeah, other than that... You're thinking of Harrow County. Harrow County, yeah. Harrow County gets lots of good reviews and it was nominated for some Eisners. But it's hard for me to think about like an ongoing or even and announce miniseries of new stuff from Dark Horse. And I'm like, yes, it's that. You know, I'm so excited. Because, yeah. Yeah, they'll announce an, a new Hellboy miniseries. And I'm like, yeah, sure, fine. They'll announce something from the Goonverse, maybe. And I'm, yeah, sure, I like it. And Adam Warren still doesn't power it. But something new from a new creator. Image announces at least four of those every month. And usually one of them is at least interesting. Almost every month we have something positive to say about an image release. Yeah, so they need it, and Berger could be the one to bring it, but without anything other than it's a Berger book, I don't want to get super excited because, you know, hype is its own worst enemy. Right, no, I'm not suggesting blind hype. All I'm saying is that in the overall pool of professionals that Dark Horse could have chosen to align themselves with, she was probably the top of the list and deservedly so. She is the most qualified person to handle a project like this for a company that needs that kind of diversity. So that's the news. Anything else or shall we go on to the previews? Let's go on to the previews. Who do you want to start with? Let's start with Marvel and Fish it quick. Tom, I know that you have been left bereft and bored ever since Civil War II ended. I know that you have just been waiting for another event from Marvel. No, because Sean, Sean, you were forget you actually managed to forget that Inhumans versus X-Men is a thing that is a thing that's happening right now. There's a crossover going on beneath your nose and you haven't noticed. I know that you have just been missing that fourth simultaneous event to really round out your month, and Marvel in their generosity are giving you Secret Empire by Nick Spencer and Steve McNiven. Three issues, and the first two are $5, so if you want to buy that series, if you want to order in advance, as Brian Michael Bendis tells you you should, you are paying $14 first month for something you haven't read yet. For the first three parts of a nine-part miniseries that will be prematurely spoiled, extended, and immediately forgotten when the next event happens. 
quite possibly delayed in the middle. Oh, yeah. And I would like to remind you at this point of my policy to immediately drop any book that ties into a crossover. We said this would happen, Tom, and it did. Margaret Stoll's Mighty Captain Marvel ties into Secret Empire at issue five. This woman has not even finished her first trade paperback. It's Butters and Fezekis all over again, so I'm glad that I did not pick up the first few issues. Marvel cannot be trusted. They don't want your money. There are several, you know, number one lunches that look interesting in theory, but because it's Marvel, I'm tired before I even starting to read them. So there's a new Rocket Raccoon series because the last one launched last month, so you know. <laughs> and the one before that with Scotty Young, remember him? Yes, it's less the, the thing that they're always relaunching because as Paul O'Brien... And uh, Al Kennedy said in House to Astonish, if you want to go to the Hellboy model of a series of miniseries, that's fine. But they keep treating those series like each one is an ongoing thing. So you buy Rocket Raccoon number one, then you buy Rocket Raccoon number one, and then five months later, you buy Rocket Raccoon number one. Yeah, and it's different writers, and, different and status quo. And they're all volume one on the shelf, which is ridiculous. And understandably, I think every writer tends to treat it like a clean slate. So nobody builds on, on anything that the previous writer did. We have a new Rocket Raccoon series called Rocket, written by Al Ewing. Again, I like Al Ewing. Al Ewing deserves better. Al Ewing needs to get his ass out of Marvel because this is getting ridiculous. All of his books tie into Secret Empire this month, by the way. Every single one. Uh, he makes a good effort. Uh, we are not reviewing it. I did read this week's 2080 40 year anniversary special. They have a new Zombo story with Al Ewing and Henry Flint. And they're doing a parody of 1970s Pat Mills uh, working class comics. <laughs> with Zombo saying, you know, like, Air tough. I may be just a pure, you know, honest day zombie, but I too can help the British fight against the commune Nazis. And they're like, literally like saying, we're vaguely communist supervillains, but you can't tell from which country we are due to rights and possibly, you know, political entanglement in real world. It was an hilarious story, but yeah. I don't know, he seems to like it. L. Ewing is one of those guys who likes superheroes, who likes the ridiculousness of the Marvel Universe, but by God, as much as I like L. Ewing... I want him to, you know, have space to work his ideas in and not constantly be tied down, relaunch, rework, reshuffled, whatever. Every single time. Every or an, another number one, like Black Bolt number one, which is, it's written by Saladin Ahmad and drawn by Christian Ward. That's a good creative thing, in theory. It's an Inhumans book. It's a trap. It's an Inhumans book starring a character who can't speak, which, I don't know, Fat Bubbles Galore? It doesn't even matter, though. You'd be reading it for three issues, and then it would be Inhumans versus X-Men tie-in, then it would be a Super Inhumans tie-in, then it would be Secret Empire's tie-in, then it would be... They've even started talking about the event after Secret Empire. And you have Saladin Ahmad, who's an award-winning uh, science fiction fantasy author. Bring him in, have a lot of good publicity, but no, they stick him on an Inhuman book. Give him his own book. Do like you did with Miss Marvel. Do like you did with Black Panther. You know, give him a book that's its own thing. Well, even Black Panther isn't doing so great. World of Wakanda's been cancelled. Yeah, Roxanne Gay, it's AWOL, it's not in the May solicitations. Well, the fact that they were so quickly launched a Black Panther spin-off was a bit premature. Sure, but then they've also solicited, right, last month we talked about Black Panther and the crew as the third Black Panther book. So clearly, it's bedlam. It's utter lunacy what's going on in this house. And proving further that they 
Marvel just don't want my money, I guess. Jason Aaron and Chris Bacalo had been replaced on Doctor Strange. After a run that did more to spark interest in that character than anything that Marvel have put out since The Oath. And the new creative team, get this, is Nico Henrichan, who's the artist on Pride of Baghdad. Great artist, but the writer is Dennis Hopeless. And their first issue is a Secret Empire tie-in. So Now, I will say that's an amazingly cautious move by Marvel, not relaunching immediately. But who cares, though? Like, the first issue of the new creative... Even if it was a good creative team... Hopeless is not a bad writer. He's an okay writer. Filling out Jason Aaron's shoes is a tough job. It's not even that. It's that Doctor Strange managed to define itself very clearly as breaking away from conventional takes on stuff. And the problem with Hopeless, the reason that he is an okay writer and not a good writer is because he always plays it safe. He will always pick the most predictable, obvious route of storytelling. And so to apply that to Doctor Strange, it's like, okay, great. You're basically taking away the strength of the book. And, you know, the fact that it's also a secret Empire tie-in, you know, you might as well just hang a big flashing neon sign that says exit because I got the message. Looking down in Marvel previews, you see some really, really bizarre things, including Zombies Assemble number one and two by uh, Yushiko Komiyama, adapted by Jim Zab. That's an American adaptation of an original manga series uh, published in one of those big, thick uh, Japanese anthologies in which the Avengers fight zombies, which as a story, it's so, you know, okay, there are zombies, whatever. Didn't we do that for like five years? Yes. How long did Marvel Zombies run? Forever, right? It was the undead comic. But the fact that it's adapted from a Japanese comic into English is fascinating at least. I might look at it just for the oddness factor of it. Uh, lots of missing information in the solicits that speak louder than presence. You know, books that are basically MIA and, can, and are presumed dead. Uh, Ghost Rider, Kate Leth's Hellcat. Nicole Perlman's Gamora, Silk, um, Jeff Lemire's Moon Knight seems to be ending, not that the solicitation well, text yeah. says that. Now, with Moon Knight, you, it's one of those books that I can see reaching its natural ending after 15 issue. There is a very obvious storyline running throughout the whole thing. It's a book that I have problems with, Moon Knight, because it feels to me like I should love it, but I don't. It's like, I see what you're doing, I appreciate it intellectually, but I can't emotionally connect what you're doing maybe when it's done i'll sit down and reread the whole thing and it'll work better for me it's a beautiful book if nothing else one of the best art teams around ultimately that's not enough to get invested into it i i have enjoyed it but i'm also very very partial to dissociative identity disorder as a story trope so it's interesting because moon knight for me is a very artist-based character is a character that needs a very creative and avant-garde-ish almost artist to work with him. Because the best Moon Knight's run before were Declan Shelby drawing with Warren Ellis. And it was one of the first big breaks of uh, Sinkevich. So because the concept is so thin in, in theory, you know, it's Batman, but he's dressed in white. The original concept, before they added the whole... Oh, well, listen... But the original concept for Daredevil, right? Like, at some point, you have to move past that and say, okay, so... Yeah, but I'm saying, for me, he's a very artist-based character and the series in general. So if the artist is good, often the failings of the writing can be ignored when it comes to Moon Knight series. That seems to be the theory for me. Uh, In collections, I just want to mention 
Darth Vader by Kieran Gillen and Salvador La Roca, Omnibus. It was a 25-issue uh, series, along with a short guest appearances in the main Star Wars book. And it was very good. It wasn't the greatest thing ever, but he actually found a way to make it an interesting story, even though we knew Darth Vader was going to survive. So it's more of the story of how people react to him and how the Empire is ran next to him, before him, the relationship between Vader and the Emperor. I think initially he figured out the same thing that the Rogue One people figured out, which is that when it comes to Vader, if he is not your focalizer, if he is just this big intimidating presence that's coming towards you in a dark hall, that's fine, right? That's the thing that makes him effective. But afterwards, even in the context of Gillen's run, it started getting so weird with the cyborgs. And oh, the I really liked it. The- they basically had, he had a new character, Dr. Afera, who became... A hit because she has a kitty pride to his Wolverine, right? Um, yeah, she's, I guess she's, she's the point of view, and she has her own series now, which is also pretty good. The big problem with that is, I'll mention Marvel price hikes are also reaching their omnibus. It's uh, one hundred bucks for seven hundred thirty-six pages. When most companies announce an omnibus, they will charge you for a thousand pages, even more. And Marvel is just like, no, that's enough. Anything else from Marvel? No. I mean, honestly, if they don't care, why should we? Moving on to DC. This one was weird to me. So, Bane Conquest number one. This is by Chuck Dixon. Art by Graham Nolan. It is a 12-issue mini by the creators of Bane, if one is so inclined, I suppose. I don't know. Bane is a character who has been through some shit in terms of transformation from his original vision to what he is now they just did a reintroduction arc in batman right the tom king i am bane thing so i guess that's the reason they're doing it now because oh right he's in the big popular batman book let's use that to jumpstart a bane series i guess but going back to chuck dixon for that well you can say from the original creative team which with old school comic fans there is a cachet there yeah yeah that's fair you know chuck dixon for me at his height was one of those okay writers like you know, a pair of safe hands. Conservative writer in all in all ways of the word. Well, no, let's be fair here and remember that he also created the Birds of Prey. Gail Simone may have popularized them, but he did come up with it. And that was a fine book. It wasn't... I thought the book reached new heights under Simone. And when he, when he was doing, like, mainstream DC superheroes, he was never bad. But he was never someone who I'd say, oh, it's a Chuck Dixon book. I gotta have it. And that was even when you still didn't have the image revolution. You didn't have Boom or Aftershock. Where if you want to read like semi-mainstream book, you had Marvel and DC and that's it. And, you know, Bane is a usable character. For someone who started as a the guy who would break the Batman and had very little personality beside, you know, he, de- he developed quite well. You can do a Bane series. I think he developed well... Thanks to the efforts of other writers, though. Dixon was not the one who made him. I think Bane's personality developed most as a member of Secret Six. Yeah, again, Simone. (laughs) Simone, yeah. So it's sort of like the analogy that comes to mind is like when Rob Liefeld wanted to write Shatterstar again. And it was like, this character has moved significantly beyond your original definition. And when you say that you're bringing back the original creative team, obviously your expectation is that they're going to write their Bane. Yeah, it's like, it's Len Wein doing Swamp Thing. You all like, everybody likes Len Wein Swamp Thing, right? Exactly. 
So it, it does raise that question of, do we really need it? Because I don't know Chuck Dixon. Like, I don't know his reputation professionally. Maybe he would be inclined to incorporate changes to the character. But I think that when they have changed so dramatically, it's best to let it be. Uh, speaking of old school and Batman, uh, Tales of the Batman, the Gary Conway hardcover. That's a collection of most of the big Gary Conway stories from classic Batman. We have issues... Uh, Batman 295, 305, 306, 337, Detective Comics 464, 497 to 499, 501 to 504. That's a whole lot of Batman, mostly written by Gary Conway with art by Conway, uh, Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, Jim Opero, Steve Ditko, Michael Golden, Don Newton. Not bad at all. No, 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 it's like slice of classic Batman. And most Batman from that time is very, very good. It's not the greatest thing ever. It's not transformative, but it's just like very rigid, creative superhero stories. And the art team is, again, spectacular, right? Jose Garcia Lopez is seriously underrated. He was a great artist. He truly was. One last item I've got from DC here, which is a weird one. Uh, bug! Exclamation point. <laughs> yeah. the, the Adventures of Forager, number one. This is written by Lee Allred, drawn by Michael Allred, colored by Laura Allred. It's a Young Animal six-issue miniseries. Now, am I wrong in thinking that this is a fourth-world character? It is a fourth-world character, yeah. He's okay. one of the people who live below New Genesis, like the peasants to the new gods. I have thought, to be honest, that fourth-world would be a perfect fit for Young Animal's aesthetic. So it's here, I guess, and having all the Allreds on board is a fascinating prospect. All the Allreds. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so have they ever all collaborated on something before? I assume so, but I don't know. I don't think I ever read anything by Lee Allred. Had he written anything? Had he written anything famous before? Nothing that comes to mind. I mean, when people think about writing, it's usually Michael Allred. So, uh, we'll see. I mean, I'm very, very intrigued by it. I'll be checking it out. Okay. Uh, shall we move on to the indies? Sure. Uh, Image? Image. Jesus Christ, Tom. Yes. Young Blood number one <laughs> by Chad Bowers and Jim Toe. What the F is this? You notice how I held myself back. Let me make it clear to you that we're going to review this, yes? I am making that commitment right I, now. I mostly know Chad Bowers is one of the creative partners of Chris Sims of the Comics Alliance and X-Men 92 fame. I think he drew... The Sims uh, short-lived webcomic Awesome Hospital, but maybe I'm wrong. I don't know about that, but I know that the image solicitation text did specifically cite X-Men 92 for Chad Bowers. So that is known. So now let's assume that this comic defies tradition of Youngblood and actually comes out. <laughs> no, let's assume it tries for a profit or a glory rather than a blood strike relaunch thing. Youngblood? The thing is with Chad Bowers from the little of him that I've read and that I know, I'm afraid it's going to be even worse than playing it straight. It's going to be like an ironic distance thing of, oh, it's kind of funny, ridiculous, but not really, but kind of, yeah. But hang on, you are not wrong in pointing out that thus far, that has been his shtick. Like, that's a fair evaluation because in his work, Chris Sims is the same way, right? These are critics who tend to look at the 90s and make fun of them ironically. Say, it's the best thing ever. Look at those rippling pouches. Which is funny in an article. Not so funny when you have to pay three ninety nine for a comic, right? We're going to review this. We're probably not going... I don't think either of us are going to be committing to it. But um, 
Stranger Things have been good. Yeah, but Youngblood is, I think, scraping the bottom of the bottom of the barrel. This was the one that, if I'm not mistaken, it did not make it to issue two, right? This was the one that had Team Youngblood spinoff. And then, no, Youngblood Bloodsport didn't make it to issue three. That's the one. Okay. The idea of Youngblood, in theory, is decent. It's the superhero team as superhero celebrities, which was, at the 90s, that was new. Nowadays, A, it's been done, and B... It's been done better. <laughs> yeah. Um, On the saner side of things, though, uh, Eternal Empire number one. This is by Sarah Vaughn and Jonathan Luna. Solid creative team. I think they both worked together on Alex and Ada. They did Alex and Ada, yeah. What happened to the other Luna brother? He just disappeared. He has disappeared, Joshua Luna. Where are he at? I don't know. I, I'm, I'm afraid it's like uh, Professor X, Cassandra Nova type thing. Oh, like, no. They fought and only one, like, they joined or one of them remained. Plot twist. Sarah Vaughn is Joshua Luna. And I would have gotten away with it. Good, good, <laughs> still making comics with your brother. You just pull off Sarah Vaughn's wig and Joshua Luna's hiding underneath. It's like, I would have gotten away with it too. Um, <laughs> so the, the premise of Eternal Empire is about an evil empress whose armies have conquered most of the world. And a young woman has had a vision that might give her a way out. Kind of vague. But again, this is a creative team that based on their previous work, I wasn't a huge fan of how Alex and Ada ended. But for its run, it was very, very interesting. So I'm on board with this one. Paklis, I think that's how it's pronounced, number one, written and drawn by Dustin Weaver. That's one of those uh, one-man anthologies thing, which apparently is very popular right now in Image. We're reviewing one in this episode later. And there's going to be ongoing stories and one-off stories. Uh, the first issue will have Mushroom Buddies. Greg struggles with knowing what's real and fears becoming complacent in the world of human insects. Uh, Sagittarius A, a war hero is on a mission to the center of the galaxy to learn the dark secrets of his dead father scientific experiments and Emenea Cycle, a young jet wing pilot goes AWOL in a war against Nuriel. Intriguing. Uh, Dustin Weaver. He's a great artist. I don't think I ever read anything he wrote. You might have. He did Edge of Spider-Verse. I did not read Edge of Spider-Verse. I do find it interesting that Image seems to be more and more invested because, as you said, this is not the only one-person anthology that Image By the way, that's $6, but large size, so that's okay. It should be fine. Uh, I'm not sure. Is that a model that is advisable? Is it something that Image should be pursuing more? It's an interesting model. If nothing else, it, it breaks the habit. It does. Dying in the Dead... Reaches Ugh. issue four. <laughs> issue, we reviewed issue one in 2015. Now, this was a story about old people barely moving, so I guess that makes sort of a sense, but it's not just that we didn't like it. That's, you know, some people like that, that's fine, but pacing matters four issues in one and a half years. That's not even quarterly. I remember the rant I threw at the time and what I... I managed to just like vent all of my anger without expressing the one thing that really pissed me off about that book, which was that it does not respect your time as a reader. When a book is just like, you're going to sit here through 20, 40, 60 pages of people just rambling about problems that they don't care about, and you are going to pay as much money as we charge you to hear this very, very important conversation. It's what if Fantagraphics did a parody of a Jonathan Hickman book? 
More or less, except, of course, it's the man himself. Uh, books that are actually on time. Elephant Man A reaches issue 77, and B is in starting the final story arc. I've only read the first four story arcs of Elephant Man. They're pretty good. I really, you know, one day I'll buy the rest. I will say this. It's one of the best design series in terms of looking. And B, they produce the best overall trades in the business. Every Elephant Man trade comes with tons of extra and it's super thick. And you have creator commentary and sketches and art. They're like really pushing forward with it. And again, 77 issues. That's a long story. That's like an achievement. So does that make it the longest series they've got? Well, from the independent non-superhero stuff, because Invincible r- ran longer. Oh, no, and... of course. Invincible and The Walking Dead, if we, if we ignore those two, is Elephant Man the longest running title they've got? Uh, one of them, yeah, certainly. And they're good on Richard Starking, and his, there was a huge creative team. You know, there's a million artists. Alex Medlin is drawing it right now, so good on him. Excel, not Alex, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> one other item from Image which I have conflicted feelings about, and I wanted to pick your brain about it. Jim Mahfood is back doing creator-owned work with a title called Girl Scouts Magic Socks. It's a sequel series because there was actually two other Girl Scout series in like the late 90s, early 2000s, which I've read. The time period would explain why I have never heard of them before. Uh, the original was a very crazy comedy about... Uh, Series of good drug dealers fighting against the evil corporation, which was sort of kind of Nike. And then the second miniseries changed shift completely and it was sort of d- downturn, you know, life in the city kind of thing. And they were much more humane and human characters. Uh, it looked great. It's Jim Mufford, you know. It seems from the solicitation that this one uh, ramps up the gears again and doing breakneck action type thing, which... Have you read Jim Mufford's uh, The Revival of uh, Miami Vice that he did with uh, Joe Casey? It was a weird book, but it did show that Mufford's new style where he's like drawing away from... Where he's sort of drawing <laughs> more influence from like crazy anime type thing is very adaptive to doing action. So when he says, you know, this issue is stuffed to the gills with... Action pack story and and sketches and bonus art and I'm gonna throw everything at the reader. It's something that he wants to do and it's something that's gonna be interesting to look at at least. The problem is will it stand on its own without you having read the previous two series? Well, the solicitation text seemed to imply that, but you never know. I mean, I, I and why if they're doing that, why isn't there a reprint of Girl Scouts and uh, and you know at the same month? That would seem to be a no-brainer, right? You know, that did occur to me. It seemed weird that they didn't... Maybe it's a rights issue? Well, if they're publishing it via image. Well, they're publishing new content via image. The old content, who knows where it is. Uh, anything from Dark Horse? Nope. Uh, I just want to mention uh, two things. Ether Volume 1. Uh, that's written by Matt Kint and David Rubin. I've read the first issue. It's a very interesting and great-looking series. David Rubin is a great artist about a scientist who's becomes like this Sherlock Holmes of a magical fantasy place. And everybody's like, oh, it's magic. You don't have to explain it. And he's like, no, no, no. I'm going to treat everything rationally. And while in there is like their big hero, whenever he has to go back to the real world, he's like a mess. He's a wreck there. So it's a very good fantasy science series. And there's something called Glister, which is a collection of Andy Watson comics. 
Oh. Which apparently an old Andy Watson series of like short graphic novels about a young girl living in an English estate. I haven't heard that name in ages. Notice this. 304 pages, $15. Uh, I might just buy it simply for, oh, it's cheap Andy Watson. It's tons of, you know, content. H.P. Lovecraft's The Hound and Other Stories. Now, we are not sure for H.P. Lovecraft's adaptation. I think there's like four of them every month. <laughs> but this is a manga adaptation. By what? No. Tanabe. No. Oh, yes. No. Yes. Yes. No. 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 no, no. I am there. Tom, they will misuse Cthulhu's tentacles. Cthulhu's tentacles were not meant for that. Uh, Gu Tanabe is actually a very well-regarded manga artist. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. Not of that type, Sean. And if you're an art nerd, Lead Poisoning, the pencil art of Jeff Darrow hardcover. That's a perfect gift if you want to make your artist friend hate himself. You're like, oh, you want to draw comics. Here's how a guy who knows how to draw comics does that. And he looks at it and he says... Well, I'll never be as good, and he chops his own hands off. <laughs> That's a real thing that happened. I would not be surprised. Okay, uh, smaller publishers, Sean? Sure. Uh, Boom has Misfit City Number 1 by Kiwi Smith and Kurt Lusgarten, art by Naomi Frenquiz. Now, the premise was what caught my eye here. In the 80s, a cult kids' adventure movie was filmed in Wilder's hometown, and it was this big, exciting event Nothing has happened since. Now she and her friends may have found a real pirate's treasure map. So this is basically Metagoonies. And I'm okay with it's, that. It's Lumber Goonies. It's Lumber Metagoonies because it's as if the Goonies was filmed in this town and now they're having the actual Goonies story happen 20 years later. It looks to be one of those things that's announced as a miniseries and is going to be an ongoing because it's going to be successful. Well, the premise is limited, right? It's the idea that they're going out on an adventure to find the pirate's treasure. But we'll see. We'll see. Well, where that's what they said about Stranger Things. Um, did they? Yes, it was supposed to be a one-season thing. Well, they ended it on the cliffhanger, so they really only screwed themselves over in that uh, And because a month cannot pass without me mentioning a Giant Days in some way, shape, or form. <laughs> Giant Days, not in the Test Edition Volume 1 hardcover. If you haven't uh, read Giant Days yet, this is a collection of the first eight issues of the regular series, plus the limited edition John Ellison written and drawn Giant Days like test series. He did three issues that were more of a like his own style of webcomic, just with the Giant Days cast. Yeah, it was before he teamed up with Lisa Tremaine. Mm-hmm. So uh, Giant Days is great. And to be honest, it reads better in groups of eight than groups of four. I think it reads better. I think it reads great in any way you read it in. Okay, I've got one item of interest from Archie, which has, again, managed to provoke mixed feelings. So Ryan North and Derek Charm are off Jughead. This is the second creative team shift in 15 issues. The prospect would be troubling me more, except that the new team is Mark Wade and Ian Flynn, and Wade is still holding steady on the core book. So... Ian Flynn is drawing? Yeah. Ah, I remembered him as a writer, maybe I'm mistaken. He did the very, very well-regarded Mega Man series from Archie, which was actually very good. That's fair. Uh, I am a little concerned that, you know, two books in the same universe with the same characters, with the same writer, could run the risk of being a little samey. And really, the, the move from Zdarsky to North was so effective. I don't understand. I wish I could understand why stability is so hard for this title to achieve, though. They cannot hold on to a creative team for any length of time. And I know, okay, it's Jughead. But still, it seems like such a waste. 
if it'll work, it'll work. So far, they have good creative control there. Archie Comics is a bit like the Marvel movies right now. We'll see. I, I have less confidence in their ability to continue being as good as they currently are if the creative team drastically changes. Like, if this had not been Mark Wade, but had been, I don't know, Mark Guggenheim, I would have quit the book. From Oni Press, Wasteland Compendium Volume 1. This is the Anthony Justin, Christopher Mitten post-apocalyptic series, which got very good reviews in the early 2000s. It was plagued by delays, if I remember correctly, but I wasn't really there at the time. That's 40 bucks for over 750 pages of comics. So, I'm interested. Have you read it? I remember getting very good reviews. But then again, he was, he was a friend of most of the reviewers. He was one of the guys who founded the Ninth Art. Yeah, so I, I, I haven't read it. I don't know Anthony Johnson as a writer. He did uh, not Copperhead, The Fuse. So, yeah, I wasn't into that. No, but, you know, it's another thing entirely, and it seems interesting. Anything else from any other company whatsoever? Nope, that was the end of my previews highlights. Okay, so that was me also. Shall we move on to the actual reviews? Let's. What do you want to start with? Uh, the Wildstorm. Yes. Okay, so The Wildstorm number one by Warren Ellis and John Davis Hunt, DC. We've talked about it. This is Ellis's attempt to revitalize and revive uh, the Wildstorm universe, which he, of course... Redefined. Oh, yes. I have a funny anecdote about that, which I'll get to in a minute. Uh, so he, he came on board uh, with Stormwatch somewhere in the 30s, uh, took it over, made it a fantastic book, went on to The Authority, and it sort of changed after that. Uh, the big idea here is that this universe is redefined as more of a science fiction, sort of, kind of, post-cyberpunk meets spy fiction type thing. So we have a silent war going on between the multinational and mysterious Hello Corporation and the super-secretive government agency I.O., International Operations. And in the middle, our main focalizer, though it's one of those large cast of characters books that Ellis really likes recently, is uh, government peon Angelica Speca, who's an internet I.O. Like, she seems to be one of those people who know she works for the government, but not exactly what the government does. And when she witnesses the head of Halo Corporation being thrown away from the window of his office building, she manifests superpowers in the form of the engineer suit from the authority, and she flies to save him. So, what did you think of it? Hmm, okay. No, uh, <laughs> no, 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 no. It's one of those things that I've talked about before with regarding the burger books, right? Can you go forward by looking backward? Now, on the one hand, uh, Ellis's rigid formalism is on point as it ever was, especially recently. And there is a very like machine-like efficiency in the story in A, establishing the world, B, establishing tone, and C, introducing a large crest of characters, and even D, throwing further complications into the plot. This is not like a wasted issue. And because it's Ellis writing in his very formal dialogue type, he can be one of those rare writers who can get away with just having characters throw info dump because it fits with the way they speak. And John Davis Hunt art is very fitting for that type of story. The part where, again, Angelica's skin is sort of blowing away from inside of her and building around her is a very impressive piece of art. Here's the thing. 
I've seen it all before, right? I've seen it quite recently. It felt to me very much like Injection, the other Alice book that's still running at Image. You have a team of people who are all very smart and very opinionated and talking those semi-quippy, semi-angry type lines and something bad happened in the background and super science will either save us or destroy us. Okay, so this is the funny anecdote that I wanted to share with you. I read this issue, didn't like it. But what I did was, you're talking about going forward by looking back, I went back and reread Stormwatch 37, which was Ellis's first issue on Stormwatch. Do you know what happens on the fourth page of that issue? What? Team banter. Characters are arguing with each other, making jokes. You have Christine. You have uh, uh, Fuji making comments about his beautiful new radiation suit and all the other gaseous entities are going to be jealous of him. There's a sense of humanity and of a certain depth to characters. And this book, The Wild Storm Number 1, is ice cold. The characters are all kept at arm's length. Even Angela, who's supposedly the, the protagonist, right? Like the hero of the story. Her boss implies that she's a junkie or a schizophrenic because she talks to herself. Ellis really has managed to shift completely away from the capacity to depict any kind of human emotion realistically. It's all pure, detached, pseudo-cerebral Technically impressive, but impossible to care about. It was mm. more important for Ellis in the afterword to this issue to assure the readers it's a 24-issue run and I'm treating it as a series of novels and it's perfectly structured and everything is planned out. Warren, I don't know who you think I should be rooting for in this story because you have three factions, right? You've got Zealot and the Division. You've got Michael Cray and Io. You've got Jacob Marlowe and Halo. You've got Angela Spica, who used to be in The Authority, which given that The Authority went from Ellis to Miller, somehow she was still more sympathetic in those books. And you have uh, Voodoo, who turns up for like two seconds and talking about alien abductions or whatever. Nothing. No characterization. It is detailed and hyper-compressed and typical Ellis in that way. Technically impressive. I don't give a damn about any of it. I don't know who the protagonist of this story is. I don't know who is against who because Io, Michael Cray ends up bleeding from his eyes and Jacob Marlowe is an alien and Halo wants to help people. I don't know what any of this means. In the first run of Stormwatch, there was the bar episode, right? Yeah. When the gang has downtime and they all split up into different groups and they go to bar running and the end... Uh, Winter, who was the team leader at the time, was like, how come I didn't know you guys did this? One of the other characters describes, like, this is our routine. We go, we have fun. The girls all go on a girls' night and they pick up guys and they have all of these in-jokes between each other. None of that here. And when you think about it, none of that in Moon Knight too. There's a reason I like Lemire's Moon Knight so much more than Ellis's. Yes, Declan Shelby did fantastic artistic work. That book was cold as an iceberg, not an iota of human emotion, not the slightest bit of warmth or detail or pathos or happiness, sadness, nothing, no emotion, zero. It's as blank as Shelby's mask design. And I'm having the same problem here. I totally understand that. Now, for me, it works for some... Ellis's recent style and falling into his tics of, you know, keeping everything at arm's length. 
works for certain things. It worked for Moonlight A because Moonlight was limited, and B because the whole point of Moonlight was just, here's Shelby doing his thing. Here's what we can do with this. And here, like I said, yeah, the rigidity and machine-like quality of it all is a problem. Because Angelica is supposed to be our focalizer, right? We are supposed to feel her emotions when she's like, the, the part where she's flying, she's breaking away from the ground, she's breaking away from cold humanity, and she becomes a superhero, right? She saves someone because he's in trouble. That's supposed to be this big moment, and like you said, I don't feel it. I don't think he's not trying to make you feel it. I don't think he's entirely cold. I just doesn't don't think it works that well. No, I don't even think he's capable of it anymore. Because if you look back at Alice's past works, right? Forget the authority and so much for a moment. Even Next Wave had more personality than this book. Zealot, right? She turns up at the beginning of the story. Describe her to me. She's a cold bastard. And? Well, she's in two pages. First issue, tell me more about her. Tell me about Jacob Marlowe. Who is he? What's his deal? Sean, there are 17 characters in this story. Well, that's not my problem, right? I didn't write this. So it keeps bumping up against this thing that... I don't know why this happened or how it happened, but I guess when Ellis had that famous... Oh, I, I totally uh, get why and how everything happens, because it's very plain and on the page. I, I'm talking about this shift in Ellis's style. Maybe, like, when he had that famous hard drive crash, his emotions crashed with it. I don't know. Oh, no, no, no. Okay, that's... No, that's... I just don't like getting personal. No, 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 no. This isn't a personal thing. This is something that manifests in his work. It's the main reason that I have had so much difficulty with every single project that he has put out in the last five to seven years. It's always the same thing. He always comes up with very technically impressive uh, science fictional premises that sound like they could lead in interesting directions, but are unfortunately shackled by the fact that because he no longer seems capable of displaying a character in such a way that you want to know what happens to them, or that you become invested in their problems, which is a basic thing. Think about it this way. If you were reading Transmetropolitan and you did not care about Spider-Jerusalem, if he did not matter to you, if he was just a robot who was citing propaganda or whatever, right? Would that series have worked? You find out Spider-Jerusalem, spoiler for Transmetropolitan, you find out Spider-Jerusalem has some kind of horrible disease, degenerative, he's dying, it's so important for him to take down the Smiler, you know, he's still grieving over Vita. Does any of that matter if you don't care about the character? Not in Transmetropolitan. I'm saying again, there are types of story where this type of thing works. It works for Moon Knight. It doesn't really work here. I agree with you on that. I think he's suffering from the Ellen Moore problem of... You know, he's a very smart guy, he's a very smart writer, but he, he lets his, you know, smarts overwhelm the humanity of it all. And it's, like you said, it's all, it's a very impressive puzzle piece, and the the sheer formalism of it is an impressive work. But, like you said, connecting to it on an emotional level is a problem. Now, I'm still tempted I still want to keep on reading it, but I'm not keeping my hopes up, as it were. What he has said in that afterward was that the way that he is designing this is that it is four arcs of six issues each. I'm not sticking around for the ongoing. I will come back and look at the first trade. But I have a sneaking suspicion that... Because, again, like one of the things that is both a strength and a weakness for Ellis is his consistency. 
he does not tend to spike up and down in terms of not just the quality of the story, but in his chosen strategies for writing. Now we we have to make to make it clear, I think, because we both didn't like most of his recent writing. If you did like Injection, you will like this. If you did like Trees, you will like this. Yeah. Again, like if your interest in continuing the story is purely intellectual and you want to see what he's going to do with this world, go right ahead. I, I, no, here's the thing. I, you know that I like those kind of things. I like intellectual sure. exercises even for their own sake. But but here, it's not even in the service of something that interesting. It's in the service of a road sci-fi reinvention of a superhero universe, a.k.a. New Universal. Which he already did. And he's doing right now in Injection. You know, he doesn't call them superheroes, but it's basically the same thing. Do I really need it with the wink and nudge of, oh, here's Zealot. You see, she has those marks like she had in the Jim Lee costume. Oh, it's just drops of blood. She's wiping them away. She's wiping away her superhero identity. Yes, I get it, Warren. Very subtle. But also, I think that maybe part of the reason why both of us are having difficulty on that level is because... We have been reading Alice for, what, 20 years now? This is not new to us. If you had never read Alice before and you like Injection, you will probably like this. But for me, again, like the fact that I went back and read his first issue of Stormwatch because I knew that I would immediately see that difference. It's not even going all the way back. Like you said, the big crash. I think Fell was one of the last things that he did that I really loved because... Fell was about somebody who was broken, but he wasn't a cynical bastard. The whole whole point of it was that he kept on wanting to help and believe in humanity. There were certain books that he was putting out afterwards that managed to tap into something, right? Some semblance of this is a believable character and... Gravel for all its gore porn, you know, it has a point to it. This guy was a very human bastard. And let's be completely real here, right? I know this is going to sound like harsh on Ellis, but let's be honest for real here the concepts that are presented in the wildstorm number one are not exactly revolutionary in terms of science fiction premises we have nanomachines we have aliens disguised as humans we have holograms none of this shit is new what does zealot say in the beginning uh, genetic modification gee i've never seen that before right so it's not even that he's come up with a particularly innovative hook this time it's his pet themes communicated again And we have already, you and I have already seen that so many times. I do appreciate the formalism of it all. In terms of plotting, in terms of introduction, and the art is, again, lovely. And it's very well suited to that type of story. I'm interested. I'm not connected. And to me, being interested is enough. Because there's so many things that we reviewed and I'm like, I get the human emotion that you're doing. But your storytelling is so sloppy that I'm like, I can manage with... A little bit less of humanity if your storytelling is that impressive. Yeah, but like if you end up hitting those magic eight words of you do not care about any of this, then even the most impressive high concept loses you in the end. It's late era Ellen Moore, right? Oh, he knows his stuff, but you know, everybody can die and everybody does die and I don't care. My Victoriana, let me show you it. That's not for me. Uh, Shall we move on from one uh, old writer to another one? Sure, who have you got? Uh, Greg Rocca. We're doing The Old Guard, number one, art by Leandro Fernandez. This is published via Image. Now, in the very same day that we've read this comic, there was a new comic published called Highlander. (laughs) 
there's a there's a comic series uh, based on the TV show slash movie slash disaster series Highlander about you know a group of immortals fighting throughout the ages and to celebrate Greg Rocca did the old guard about a small group of mercenaries who are actually immortal warriors who've been who've been fighting since the, at least the days of ancient Greece Wow, it's like he heard that uh, IDW has the license to, uh, or was it Dynamite? I don't know. Has the license. He said, no, 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 no. I'm going to show you up. I'm going to do my own Immortal Warrior series. Now, none of them has a sword. One of them has an axe. Well, this actually raises an interesting question. Was this book announced at one of the Image Expos? Because if so, that means he's been sitting on this concept since before Highlander was written, maybe. Sean. <laughs> It's, it was announced every time they've announced the Greg Arca series because get this. <laughs> the, get this. Our protagonist is a tough, semi-damaged, but still get the job done, don't talk to her after sex smoking lady. No. Who's, who's, who's doing her dangerous, trying to be good in a morally compromised way job. Say impossible. This is a brand new Greg Arca concept. Now, and with the can't die thing, I'm pretty sure that's Lazarus. It Which is. is ongoing now. Or was it over? Is Lazarus over? Or on hiatus, maybe? I'm going to surprise you, though, and say that I enjoyed this. <laughs> I enjoyed this in spite of myself a bit. Uh, yeah. Something about this worked for me in a way that Lazarus and Black Magic didn't. On the one hand... You're right. Andy is the typical Rucka protagonist to a T, right? Laconic, uses meaningless sex to pass the time, smokes, strong woman, I, blah, blah, blah. I just blah, started blah. rereading uh, Gotham Central and like, oh my god. Yeah, there's like, Renee. Renee Montoya. <laughs> she, right? she, she's Renee. At one moment, you know, when she gets out of the bed and starts smoking, like, that's a Renee panel. I'm pretty sure I've seen it like today when I've reread that book. He even does that when he does, uh, you know, other licensed books. We remember we reviewed the Star Wars Aftermath number one. That was almost the same character. That was actually a bit better because she was much more tempered and she couldn't smoke because it's a Star Wars book. Who was she? Remind me. The, the uh, pilot woman? She was one of the rebel pilots. Right, right. Uh, Shara something. Yep. And yet, despite all that, something about this book hooked me. Now... The, the premise is a lot simpler, right? So they're immortal. They're all very worn down over centuries of warfare. I, I will say this, and uh, which it avoids the mistake that we constantly uh, talk about with image number ones. It doesn't wait to the end of the issue to feature the premise. It's not like the issue ends, oh my God, they're immortal. No, 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 no. It says so, page one, you know, panel one, we have these immortal warriors. And when the issue ends, there's a twist. Now, it's not the most surprising and devastating twist, but it's one of those things that actually give the series a direction behind, here's the premise of it all. It's not God Country, number one. No, it actually manages to communicate the hook. Also, because of the setting and because these characters are the only abnormal thing in the story so far, there's no need for excessive world building, which I think is maybe where Black Magic and Lazarus stumbled. Because they had to do a lot more heavy lifting in the first few issues to talk about, right, in Lazarus, it's this used future. In Black Magic, it's the witches with the boobies in the middle of the forest and all of that. And here it's just, no, there are these four mercenaries, there's immortal soldiers, and they take jobs to help, like, they're also explicitly taking jobs for moral reasons, right? They don't have any... <laughs> because we criticize Alice, can we avoid criticizing Rocca for doing, basically, playing greatest hits all over again? 
Yes, and I'll tell you why. What's refreshing here is that I actually do find Andy interesting. I'm curious about this character who is immortal and tired of her immortality, but still takes action even like against her own best interest because she knows that there's something wrong about this person who's offering her the job, but he tells her they kidnapped girls. And see, for me, that's not very interesting. That's actually pretty rote, especially for Greg Garka comics. But even in general, like, oh, I'm jaded, but you know, it's a kid. It's like, I'm pretty sure that's the plot of at least one third of the episodes of Burn Notice. Oh, I know you're rot to the core, but it's to save a child or whatever. Yeah, I think because he's not relying on any larger plot premise that would require him to like stop everything and explain, okay, so in the world of Lazarus, you have these families and they're all powerful and they rule. And also Lazarus is immortal because of the technology and she thinks she's a family. Or in Black Magic, the witches and the enemies of the witches and the people who are trying to kill the witches and the fire and the spells, all of that like static noise is gone here. So yeah, on the one hand, Rucka is very much coloring within the lines, as it were. But this is the first time, I think, in a very long time in reading his books. Even his Batwoman run, remember, got caught up in all of that nonsense with the animals and the magic book of Cain and the the freak show and Alice and and all of this stuff that didn't make any sense. there is, you know, there is a point to it that Rocka, you know, when you're good, you're good. And uh, just like Ed Brubaker has mostly his type of books and Garth Ennis for a long time had his type of war stories... And we don't expect people to constantly shift their states. But there is something to be said for being too much on the nose. Reading this issue, it mostly made me say, oh, I really want to read Queen and Country again. Not necessarily, oh, I want to commit to this series. Uh, the art is lovely. Landro Fernandez does some very, very nice looking things. And I'm really interested with the color palette here. Like, it jumps from like naturalistic color to sort of purple shades for no reason whatsoever in the middle of the winery scene. Maybe it's because you're drinking wine, which is a nice emotional setup. And even, you know, the part where she's like, she's playing with an iPhone and she's like, how do I use them? It's supposed to be an amusing moment of humanity, but I don't buy it because for me, for me, it's like, you're a mercenary. You're going to use technology all the time. No, but what she says is she liked the old ones first. No, but she, she has problems like, how do I slide this? And I'm like, it's 2017. You, you've you used iPhones. Tom, speaking as someone who finds iPads and touch technology incredibly frustrating, I completely sympathize with her because I can't work that shit either. And it's like, imagine if you were an immortal person, then every time there's a technological revolution, you risk getting left behind. I like that idea. And and in fact, she says, you know, I, I like the old ones better. And her partner says, but you, no, you didn't. You said the last one sucked too. So she's constantly kvetching about new technologies. Yeah, and, and again, to me, it's I like road. it. It's used. Uh, about the art, I will criticize one thing. The scene where we jump to Afghanistan. Yeah. That was confusing. Uh, the fight scene there is not very well choreographed because he does this thing where he superimposes the American sniper over the soldiers preaching into the house so you lose the sense of direction. Why does the guy they're looking for started shooting at them when they mostly said, well, we're moving out of the house now? Where exactly is the sniper positioned that shoots at him at the end? In the same room? Why? So why do we need a close-up shot of her? Like, and is the bomb literally just a couple of sticks of dynamite? 
that's a bit of that's a bit cartoony for such a low down realistic series as it were yeah that's fair I'll be honest, I'm, I'm sticking around with this one. At least for the first arc, I'm intrigued in a way that I haven't been with Rucka for a while. He could waste it. <laughs> it's like the opposite with the Wildstorm. I'm going to wait for the trade, uh, for the first trade, and maybe give it a chance there. It's not bad, but it is, it's over-familiar to me at this point. And with the market so bountiful of stuff that is new and exciting, I'm like, I'm not sure I need this one in particular. Uh, shall we move on to our last number one? Let's. We are going to be reviewing Sun Bakery number one by Corey Lewis at Image. This is an anthology comic, pretty much identical to the setup of Packlist that we mentioned in the solicitations, in that it's a showcase for a single creator writing multiple stories. Now, Sean, one of the stories here involves people fighting on skateboards. <laughs> Did we not, in episode 55, named Demon Detectives on Magic Skateboards? We certainly did. Did we not copyright this idea? <laughs> we need to get in touch with Corey Lewis. Co- Corey and- Lewis, where's my money, Corey? We need to talk. Oh, wait, I gave it to you. <laughs> I'm paying for this series. So th- this series has a bit of a history to it. As we discussed when it came up in the previews a couple of months back... Sun Bakery started out as a Kickstarter comic. It was picked up by Alternative Comics for four issues. What Image is doing now is reprinting those four and then continuing from there. It's a similar deal to what they did with Headlopper. Yeah, uh, the problem with Alternative Press, they do a lot of interesting stuff, but they're a very small company. And if you like miss there, sometimes they undership, sometimes you can get it. I tried to buy the original four issues of Sun Bakery. I've pre-ordered months in advance. Like, oh, it looks interesting. I really like Coriolis's art. I'll, I'll give that. And I only got one issue out of the three. And it wasn't issue one. And you know, I ordered and the comic shop ordered and everybody did what they had to do. But it, because it's such a small business, you know, things happen. So moving it to image, you sort of realize why they have to start again because most people probably never even heard about it. And even if they did, they had a hard time reaching it. Yeah, I don't think there's any question that the exposure he's going to get from Image is going to be significantly higher. Now, here's the thing about single-person anthologies, right? If you are going to have that kind of platform for one voice, you have to be really, really talented. And based on this issue, I think Corey Lewis is indeed that talented. This issue has four stories. There's RM, Dream Skills, Batrider, and Dead Naked. Three of them are ongoing. The last one is a one-off. Well, I'm not sure that the last one is a, is a one-off because it, it's sort of unclear. We'll, we'll get to that. No, no, no. He's, he says in the foreword and afterward, like, these are the three main stories for the, for the first couple of issues. And this was just a, an extra thing. Well, th- this is new to this version of the issue. Is what I understood. Like Dead Naked was not in the yeah, last it, version. It says so on the cover. Everything about this internal comics, page, yeah. yeah, is super packed now. He's not wasting space here. No, you have the implication that they're all taking place in the same world, which I find interesting. And you have this little mascot, Bulb, who introduces and wraps each story, kind of like Elvira used to do. I love when a comic says a personality to its presenter. He, he's uh, Marvin from, uh, from the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy version of the Crypt Keeper. He's like, 
Here's the story. No, don't ask me about that. I'm not in the mood for that. Yeah. Why do you people keep asking me to fix your, your CVs? I'm not the little yeah, office clippy. Comics need those presenters, right? It, it works for 2000 AD. You, you can't have your 2000 AD without Tharg. Absolutely. So um, the four stories are as follows. I sort of broke it down in terms of content. Aram Lightstorm is a space explorer with huge power armor. She's basically Samus Aran from Metroid, the if Metroid she, games. If she was an Instagram photographer. Instead of killing aliens, she takes pictures and uploads them online to get likes and stuff. From her Nextagram account. <laughs> Which I love that premise. In Dream Skills, guns have become obsolete because the aura circle surrounding each human has suddenly activated. So now everyone is bulletproof. But they're not immune to swords. So everything in this world is settled by sword fighting. Unlike Aram, this one doesn't really do much in the way of plot. It's mostly set up. It's info dump. And it's so shameless. It's basically one character explaining to another character how the world she lives in works. Yeah, it's a little weird. No, no, no. Here's the thing. It's one of those things that it's so shameless that it becomes great again. If it was just like, oh, as you know, it would have been terrible. But because she's making this grand speech and like speechifying and throwing her arms around and throwing her super cool sword around, it becomes awesome again. Mm. It, it's like one of it's the comics that crosses the line in certain things of how you're supposed to do something. That it becomes good again, in a way. The Aram thing. There's, it's almost fan fiction-y, right? The way, you know, we, we see her Twitter followers. We see her Instagram account. And she's based on a more famous, like, computer game character. Shamelessly so. He's, ba- he's saying without saying this is Samus Aran from Metroid. No, he admitted it. No, he's, he's saying, like, a very famous video game that you Yeah, know. but as soon as you see the armor, you know it's Samus. And, yeah, and like I say, um... It's and it's fan fiction in a good way. Like I want to connect to something emotional to the character and the reader. Yeah, well, for it to be, mm, I don't like that term fan fiction because that implies that he's writing Metroid. It's not that. No, no, like one of those things where like, oh, here's the thing that I like, and here's another thing that I like, and I'll mush them all together because I like them all. Yeah, it's still more of an original work than derivative, I would say. No, I'm, I'm not saying it as. Usually fan fiction is used when you talk about a published work as a pejorative. I'm saying it in appreciation. The good side of fan fiction, as it were. The side that's super excited and emotional and you can see the guy throwing himself into the work and loving every moment of it. Well, that's certainly true. I mean, this is a book that is bursting with enthusiasm in every single story. Uh, you see that in Batrider, you see that in Dead Naked, I found very confusing because if it is standalone, it doesn't stand alone well. It was missing like a page or two. There's this girl, she sleeps with a guy, and either he's stabbed by a scorpion, or she has a scorpion tail. Which I, I is what I assumed, but, you know, it's... Yeah, it could use some clarity. It's it's three pages, you know, and it's a one-off. I, I can deal with it. So, yeah, so I was really, really impressed with this issue. I will go so far as to say it's the best one I read this week. Uh, it's the best one I've read in a, quite a long while in terms of number ones. There's something almost Brendan Graham-like, and I'm talking about King City-esque Brendan Graham. Uh, not just in terms of uh, the art style and the lettering. The way he letters is very Brendan Graham-ish thing. Yeah. Um, which Brendan Graham, by the way, does amazing lettering. People talk about his art and writing and editing. You keep forgetting he's, one for me, one of the best letters right now. But in the way that he finds humanity in this, in all those weird and absurd premises... 
And even though it's mostly people exposing, they're exposing in a very uh, emotional way, in a very connected way. It's never just information for information's sake. And it's also in love with itself. The one problem for me is really that I wanted the first story to have a bit more space. Because the, just the way that she, you know, hung up on her ship and we saw, you know, all the little bubbles explaining this is her armor, this is her computer, this is her camera thing. I almost wanted more of that than she goes down on a planet. Again, because when we talk about King City, what you remember at the end of it is not the big adventure stuff, right? It's the people just sitting there and talking and eating ice cream sandwiches. I liked it a lot. I'm sticking around for every issue. Oh, certainly. And I hope this one will ship more than four issues. Fingers crossed. Uh, Sean, trade review. Yes. So, okay, well, first of all, did you read the trade or the issues? I've reread the issues. Okay, so I did too. Our trade review for this week is not actually a trade review. It is uh, A Land Called Tarot by Gail Bertrand. This was originally serialized in three issues of Island, which is how both of us read it. I know that the recent trade that was released through Image may have more content. Uh, no, in terms of pages, there's like 100 and so pages, and there's 100 and so pages that we've read, so... And with all with all the respect and with all my like to, to A Land Called Tarot, which is a lot, uh, I'm not going to drop another $20 on a comic I already paid for. Yeah, it seems a little bit excessive. Like, there are certain stories in Island that I would pay for a trade collection for. This isn't one of them. I really wanted to do a Ludrow collection, but there just isn't enough stuff of him yet. So. Well, not yet. Not yet. Soon, hopefully. Uh, so my feelings on A Land Called Tarot, I'm, I'm going to quote Jay Edidin on this, because he said something recently on Jan Miles Explained the X-Men that really pinged how I feel about this book. Mm-hmm. I don't like it, but it's good. A Land Called Tarot is a fantasy story. Uh, that is its most distinct feature is that it is completely non-textual. It is a silent comic for 100 pages. Yep. And we have this knight, and he materializes in the land in the land of Tarot. And he had three adventures which are kind of sort of distinct and maybe sort of kind of related to one another. You see, the reason for all those maybes and kindas is that... It's very obtuse, intentionally, so... I, and, you know, I hate to do this, but we really do need to clarify here. The problem with silent and visual storytelling is when you make the choice to take language and text out of your comic, your art has to have two objectives, not one. The first, obviously, is that the art is going to communicate the sum total of information that the reader is going to get, right? There are no word bubbles here. There's no text. There's nothing. It's only the art. So the art has to communicate everything. But the second goal, and this is where a lot of silent comics tend to fail, is that they have to be clear enough that the reader understands all the pertinent details of the story just by following the panels. I will not deny that A Land Called Tarot is beautiful. Bertrand's art is spectacular. His designs, they look original, they look refreshing. He has all of these fantastic landscapes. Just great, great stuff. I also cannot deny that I have no idea what the story is about. This character, the, the knight, travels from portal to portal, activates a stone giant, shit blows up. Then there's a dinner with a frog who gives him a magic mask. There's virtual space, a singing lantern, a bird. I don't know. Very detailed. 
very gorgeous, does not make a lick of sense to me. And specifically, it's, I don't know why things are happening from page to page. And I'll give you a, a specific sequence, right? There's a scene in which he, the, the knight approaches this princess, he kneels to her, and she gives him this pearl. He takes the pearl to a stone giant, plants it presumably where she told him to. This giant animates, he turns to stone, and then the giant explodes. Did she set him up to kill him? Because in the next story, he's back with her again. And then this frog, who we've never seen before, gives him a magic mask. Why? I don't know. He's suddenly transported somewhere else. He doesn't seem to accomplish anything. And then he goes back. He fights a dragon that's in a bus and then eats the bus. No, in a train and then eats the train. That was, by the way, a lovely visual. Just the dragon trying to hide himself by wearing a trench coat inside a train. And very conspicuously being a dragon in a train. That sort of encapsulates all of my feelings about this book, which is that it looks fantastic. It makes no sense to me. I don't... Obviously, the influence here, there's a little bit of adventure time here, right? A character like Finn running around in this amazing landscape, seeing all these really weird things. But when you think about it, like, you know what Finn's deal is. You know why he goes on these journeys. You know why he has these adventures. This book visually does not really present motivations or causality in any it's way. It's more of a series of stuff that happens rather than something that the character does. And that's something I noticed when I, whenever I read European science fiction. The tendency is for passiveness over activeness. It's very much like, here's this world. is usually something that you have your main characters... And they're sort of drag along. They're, they rarely initiate. And when they initiate, they often just stumble away until somebody points them a direction. Mobius. Uh, like I told you, I've read the Mobius World of Adina that Dark Horse brought out. And the protagonists hardly ever do something in an active way. They're pointed towards things. They're pushed through things. They're prophesied to do things. But it's more about the experience. It's more about them experiencing something and the reader experiencing the oddness through them. And it's the same thing with the uh, City of Lost Stars. And, well, I can't think of it at the top of my head because I haven't read a lot. Many of the humanoids books, like A Ring of the Seven Worlds. But I don't think that's what's happening here because the hero is active. He is going out and doing things. It's just that we don't know what these things are. Like when he, in that first story, when he puts the pearl the princess gave him on the machine, this giant... Golem wakes up, but in the process, he's turned to stone. Did he know that was going to happen? We don't know. And then the pearl drops to the ground, and somebody picks it up, and it explodes, and the whole golem comes down, and he sort of emerges alive. This character is taking action. It's not passivity. It's just that... Well, it's an action, but it's a very limited action. He's never... It doesn't seem to me like he's deciding to do something. He's sent away on these missions, and... Or he falls into these missions. Now, I will say this. I really like the book as a series of one-offs within Island. Uh, you gave it, by the way, your best art of the year last year when we did the award. The art is spectacular. But like you said, when, when you read them in the context of Island, when it's just this weird story of 30 silent pages of stuff that's interesting and expressive that's happening... It's amazing and fascinating. When you try to read it all in one, your mind is reaching to make connections that 
either aren't there or aren't explicit enough. And it wouldn't be a problem, but like you said, they've released it in hardcover now, so it's not just a series of one-off. It's one of those rare things where the sporadic uh, nature of Island works even works better for the story rather than the collected edition. I don't need to know exactly what's going on, and the art is amazing. You said Adventure Time, I thought of Final Fantasy. Yeah, or Legend of Zelda. Yeah, earlier Final Fantasy, by the way, not the horribly over-designed, like, post-Final Fantasy IX, you know, where everybody has, like, a million suits and zippers and what have you. <laughs> like, like, the good. Or or there's a bit of a Yao Miyazaki there. His loyal animal steed ship wolf thing that he rides on, that he obviously have a very human connection with, and when he emerges from the... I think it's a time loop in the final episode and he's he doesn't see it anymore. You know, that's real sadness. And you've talked about connection. There is a human connection to the characters in the story. But the world building is so intentionally obtuse and it's interesting that we do it one episode after we did Kill Six Billion Demons, which is a book that also has a very obtuse sometimes world building but is explaining it all the time. It sort of has the reverse problem. Like in Kill Six Billion Demons... My problem with that was that it was over-explaining. Like, they were they were throwing all of this lore at you, and I didn't really understand what was going on. Here, you have that sequence at the very, very end, which the book tries to portray as meaningful, right? He gets this lantern with this bird inside, and he starts flying, and then he comes to this big altar in a mountain, and he sits down, and he meditates, and there's a pink line, and then the lantern is empty, and he goes... And that's it. What did he accomplish? You, you sort of expected when I read it, oh, was there a fourth part? It feels like there should have been. <laughs> yeah, it feels like... I, I don't know, I, I just... Uh, that's, why, that's why it works so well within, as a, as, a, like, as a serial, but as a complete thing, it's just odd. As a complete thing, it feels incomplete, oddly yeah. enough. And I think that really, not to slag off Bertrand, but really this book needed word bubbles i'm sorry like or narrative captions i don't i don't think it needed thought bubbles it needed contact something some kind of explanation exposition world building information something that can tell you this thing is happening because x none of it i i find that really really weird um again i like it the art is beautiful and it's not just beautiful in terms of oh you know he can do character design well it's obtuse, but the actual movements within the pages and the way he designed those pages and the way the characters shift within the backgrounds. Again, the scene with the with the dragon thing within the virtual reality train thing is an amazing in terms of how he builds it slowly. And it moves from slapstick to threat to oddness. But like you said, I feel like a guy who watches... A movie that I know that is great, but it's in a foreign language without the subtitles. <laughs> uh, and, and, and you know, when when we were young and anime just became a thing and you would claw your way into anything that was anime shaped and you saw it and sometimes they didn't have subtitles or they had bad subtitles and you were like, I can sort of think what's going on. You know what? No, no, no. You know what it reminded me? One time I went to uh, a local cinematheque and they showcased uh, Nosferatu, the 1930s silent movie, but they didn't have subtitles in English. They showed the German subtitles. 
I could sort of made what's going on. And the movie was more of an expressive experience. So it was beautiful. And I enjoyed it as it is. But when it ended, I was like, oh, oh, it, it ended. I guess he died, I think. There, there, you know, there are words on the screen that says the end. So I know it's ended. Uh, oh, and people are getting up and leaving. Wait, wait, uh, what, 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 what happened? Did sunlight, was he stabbed in the chest? You didn't, you didn't show anything happened. You just ended the movie with the vampire. Well, I think that even in that situation, it's like, even if there's a foreign language, you can still, if you take the anime example for it, you know when a character is upset when they raise their voice, even if you don't understand what they're saying, right? Or if they, the subtitles are showing you like tons of exclamation points, you know that they're mad. You don't know what they're mad about. Even foreign languages, you can pick up some scrap of context that gives you additional information. Here, I just, I tried. I really did. But I couldn't make out the connective tissue here. Like, this guy is going on all of these quests. Are the quests connected? But no, like when he gets that cage with the bird, the bird disappears. He puts the cage on a stone that has a Roman numeral nine on it. It disappears. And then the bird ends up back with its guardian. I'm like, okay, so hang on. So then what just happened, right? What was all of this meditation? What was it for? Well, you see, a bird, a bird, a bird is the word. <laughs> I really, you know, I respect Bertrand's artwork craftsmanship it is craftsmanship it's ambitious listen this book this serial ran for three issues in island right and he kept up it, it maintains its artistic coherence from start to finish narrative coherence zero that's one of the best descriptions i think I've, i will hear about something yeah you understand in the moment on the page what every individual page means. Like when he puts on the frog mask, you understand what it means, but you don't know why. Why did he send him the mask? What was the point of it? Was he supposed to go and kill this dragon? Then why did he end up somewhere else? Why is he naked with the, the frog guy with the mask afterwards? Did the princess know about it? Because she, like she's just sitting there at the dinner with the frog guy. And she doesn't react. And this is the guy that she almost blew up intentionally or unintentionally in the previous story. Like you said, I don't want fun bubbles because obviously he doesn't want them. I don't want, like, I don't know, John Beard getting, getting his hands on it. Like, well, if I add fun bubbles, you know. No, but in that case, look, there are ways to do silent stories where you understand what's happening, even in a fantasy world. It could have been done. It just, it would have required him to draw these sequences slightly differently. I recommend it, but only if you are very patient and if you're, again, if you're an art nerd, if you're one of those guys who's like, I can deal with story making little sense as long as the experience is, is impressive enough. Yeah. But you know, no, you know what my recommendation is? Read Island. Because again, when I've read it in like small bursts, it worked a whole lot better. It's like taking a series of short, you know, animated films and showing them all together. And you're like, oh, it's kind of tiring when you're doing it like this. But when you just see them one at a time, you're like, oh, yeah, it's great. I think you're absolutely right. Like this, if it had just been a series of vignettes, that, I mean, it is a series of unconnected vignettes. There's no narrative thread that goes through them. Making us reading them all at once sort of robbed the, the immediacy of it all. 
Again, and it's not a bad book, you know? It's not, it's not a bad book. It's not like, oh, it's a terrible thing. Don't look at it. No, 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 no. Look at it, but, you know, with a critical eye. Squint in, in its direction. I'll say this much. Uh, adjust your expectations. If you pick up this book, you're going to get beautiful artwork. Very, you know, Legend of Zelda. Very fantastic. Very beautiful. You will not get a story. Now, as you said, there are readers who can appreciate art for its own sake, without a need for narrative. If you are one of those people, this book is for you. We had a lot of interesting books because we, we disliked them for so many different and varied ways. Like, this this is too rigid. This is plotless. This is repetitive. This is awesome. Well, we had one book so we agreed is awesome. Yeah, I really enjoyed Sun Bakery. I liked The Old uh, Guard. You know what? I'll around. ask you one more thing before we finish. Because you like Sun Bakery so much, will you be looking... For uh, Corey Lewis's old books, because he had a small series for Oni Press called Shark Knife, which came out alongside like Scott no, Pilgrim. No, no, and I'll tell you why. Uh, the in the foreword to Sun Bakery, he mentioned that Shark Knife would be appearing in the new issues. Oh, of, um, so my assumption is that he's importing that into Sun Bakery. That's interesting. So I don't. So I don't need to go looking for it. It's going to come to me. <laughs> okay, so that was the smorgasbord. I'm Tom Shapira. And I'm Sean Edry. Until next time, bon appétit.